Thank you, Liz, and thank you, uh, everyone, for... Whoa, drop a clicker to start with. That's a good start, isn't it? It's a very slidey uh, desk. I was going to say, do keep your Bibles open. Mine's trying its hardest to close itself. Uh, so let's, uh, let's, let's make sure we keep our Bibles open. We're going to go through this passage um, in 1 Peter. Uh, and it is wonderful to sort of be uh, in front of everyone today. I wasn't going to start saying this, but I kind of feel quite emotional uh, being up front, able to preach. The last time I sort of preached a sermon that I'd written to the church... Uh, in person was probably two years ago, uh, so it's really exciting to, to not be doing this through a camera, uh, as, as I had to do a few times last year. And I've got a question to start us off as we look through this uh, passage in 1 Peter, which is, what draws you to community? What draws you to community? When you're looking at a community, what makes you decide to be a part of it? Is it the people that are in it? Is it what they look like? Is it how they talk? Is it the things they do? Is it the way they make you feel? What draws you to a community? In this passage, Peter is talking about community. He's talking about two quite distinct communities, in fact. And continuing the theme of, of wanderers, of exiles, people who essentially are looking for a home, it's really important that we do consider, well, if we're going to join a community, if we're going to be part of something, if we're going to find a home, what's that going to look like? Who's that going to be with? How is that life going to look for us? Peter has some warnings in this passage, some warnings about a community that maybe we shouldn't be joining, and some exhortations to find a community that meets uh, God's requirements, that is, that is uh, under God's power. When we're thinking about things that draw us in, things that attract us, there's no, I think, real uh, example in modern society more prevalent and powerful than social media. The media that comes through our phones, uh, into our eyeballs, uh, or as Facebook announced this week with their brand name change, maybe directly into our brains soon, uh, is, uh, is a powerful thing. It's a powerful draw to a way we might want to live. We can have uh, the phrase Instagram influencer has become a thing. Um, the idea that someone somewhere can influence you and that not be seen as a scary and dystopian thing. I think there's no uh, more obvious example of the power of social media, the draw of social media, than an event that happened a few years ago that some of you may have heard about in the news called the Fire Festival. Um, the Fire Festival, spelled F-Y-R-E because it's cool, um, was a festival designed for the social media generation. A place where you could go and by extension of simply being there, you would be all these things you want to be. You would be beautiful. You would be cool. You would be respected. You would be one of the in crowd. It was marketed heavily across social media. It was meant to have luxury glamping, gourmet food, the best bands, and you were going to be there. And just being there, you'd be beautiful. You'd be taking photos of all your meals for some reason. Uh, and you'd be showing them off so everyone else who wasn't there would wish they were you. And as a result, you would spend thousands of dollars for a ticket to this event. As you might imagine, uh, when the festival actually happened, reality did not match appearances. People arrived on the island for the festival and found that the luxury glamping were actually disaster relief shelters borrowed from the UN. They found out that the gourmet food was basically pre-packaged Costco food in foam containers. Um, and in fact, after 12 hours, the festival was cancelled because none of the bands showed up and the campsite turned into a literal cesspool as toilets were tipped over, mattresses were, were soaked, 
and the entire uh, audience of the festival had to be evacuated by chartered aircraft. Um, in the end, uh, this uh, idea, this, this concept that you could spend some money and by virtue of the money you spent, the position you had, you would be beautiful, respected, and cool, was proven to be very, very false and very costly. People lost a lot of money on the festival, and the festival's organizer is still serving a six-year prison sentence. So it didn't really turn out to be the community people hoped they were going to join. And in this passage, Peter has a warning about a negative kind of community. And it's not just a negative kind of community that we're looking at from a completely blank slate. If we look at uh, verse 3, he says, For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. You've spent enough time in the past. This negative community he's talking about is one that people have already been involved with. They've already experienced this. And from the fact that Peter's writing this in his letter, it implies there are some people who wanted to return to it. They wanted to go back. They were talking about going back to this community. And he doesn't paint it in a particularly positive light. He says they are living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. That's not a sort of balanced list to make you, you know, think, oh, should I or should I not? He's fairly negative on this. And we're going to talk a little bit. I'm not going to explain what each of these things mean. Uh, you, you, you can possibly know what most of them mean. Although we are going to focus on detestable idolatry a bit later. But this is a quite specific list of sins. In general, this is a list of sins that some people regard in some way as actually acceptable. And there are also a list of sins that from the day Peter's writing this in the early second century through to today are practiced relatively widely and openly in society, albeit with a few caveats. When we think about sins, we'll often think about the Ten Commandments, murder. We don't generally join a community that just gets a bit murdery every now and then. And most people on the street would say the same thing. If you said you want to go murdering this weekend, they generally say no. But if you said you want to go drinking this weekend, you're going to get a better response. But we're inconsistent. The phrase a drunk generally has a negative connotation. If someone's described as a drunk on the street out there, they are going to be seen in a negative light. But if you say to someone, let's go get drunk, they might say, yeah, let's do it. And there's even inconsistency within some of these sinful areas. A guy who sleeps with a lot of women can often be known as a player, a stud. A girl who sleeps with a lot of men will generally be called a slut or other derogatory terms. We're completely inconsistent with how these things are viewed. And these are all sins that are part of community. All of these items, debauchery, lust, drunkenness, they are sins embedded within a community. Drinking is a thing most often done in groups. Some of these things, orgies, they, can be, they are group sins. And so this is a community that is not only sinning, but it's defined by its sins. And it's happy to be defined by its sin. It's not seen as a negative by the people within that community. It's not this thing that they go, oh, not a huge fan of this, but I guess we just get along with it. No, people want to do it. They want to be part of this. Not only do they want to be part of it, they want you to be part of it. Look at verse 4. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them 
into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. Aside from the sort of flowery language there, the thing is obvious. People are confused when we don't take part in this quite specifically inconsistent community of sinfulness. Not only are they confused, not only might they want you to be part of that, they are very unhappy if you're not. And note that they're not unhappy if you're criticizing them. So it's not like if you stand up and say, oh, I don't think you should be getting drunk all the time, people have a go at you. They're unhappy because you don't join in. It's not even enough to not criticize, to just stay back, to keep quiet. By not joining in, you're already offending people in this community. They're heaping abuse on you for not joining in. When I was thinking through that, I was reminded of Romans 1. Romans 1 says, although they know God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. The description Paul gives in Romans 1 implies that people intrinsically understand God's law. It's on their hearts and they choose not to follow it. And there are many reasons why people would say they won't follow this, this law. They might say it's overly moralizing things. People will come up with arguments as to why they can do those things. And they, they egg each other on. People feel guilt for these things they do. And then someone says, oh, don't feel guilty for that. It's a phrase that we hear a lot in society. You do you. You do you. It's something that could be written on a motivational poster. And yet it's actually the epitome of selfishness. You do you. Don't care about anyone else. Do what you want to do. And this is where that final sin in the list, detestable idolatry, comes in. Detestable idolatry. Now, you might think when you look at the list, it's a bit strange to include detestable idolatry. Most people don't spend an evening drinking, then going to a strip club, then going home and carving an idol out of wood. That's not a normal end to a night. But this is detestable idolatry. Yeah, it's a hard thing to say repeatedly. Detestable idolatry because it is going against God. It is putting things, putting your own pleasure, your own satisfaction above what God has told people God wants. God wants people to be sober-minded. God wants people to be respectful with their bodies, respectful with their sexual life. And these things put God below that. My pleasure, my desires first. It's detestable idolatry. I should stop saying that. Um, and it leads to judgment. Verse 5, but they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. You see, we should be concerned for this. We should be concerned for people living in this way. And we should be especially concerned if people in our church are choosing to live in this way. You might think, well, maybe I'm not living in this way. It's been a while since I went to an orgy. And so I'm, I'm, I'm clear from this. I'm done. But detestable idolatry, are you putting things above God? Maybe not things in this list. Are you choosing in your life to say, actually, this thing comes before God. This, this thing is one thing. Maybe it's seen as not a sin. Maybe you think that something you're doing isn't a sin. It's often seen that sin has to have a victim. If people found out that I had been sleeping with someone who was not Liz, they would see that as a wrong, and they would see it as a wrong done to Liz, my wife. They would see her as a victim, and therefore I'm sinful in that sense. 
But if I was not married, people might say, well, who's the victim? There's no victim if I'm sleeping with someone. But that's not how sin is defined. Sin is defined as going against God's will for us. And if God's will for us says that we shouldn't be sleeping with someone who we're not married to, then God's will says that that means I'm sinning. There doesn't need to be a direct victim for your sin to be a sin. And this is what it says. There is judgment. They will have to give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. We should be encouraging within our own communities people not to live in these ways. And where we do see people who want to move from this community, we should be helping them, empowering them. Another thing about this list is that all of these things are things that in the right context are not necessarily sinfulness. There is a place for sex. It's within marriage. And there's a place for us as Christians to talk about this. Sometimes we choose two things. Either we are completely liberal on issues of sexual sinfulness or say sexual sinfulness doesn't exist. You do you, again. Or we say, let's not talk about it. It's a dirty, wrong thing. Let's not mention it. Both of those approaches are wrong. We need to honestly talk about sex, honestly talk about what it means for us in the right context to ensure people have the right view of it. Because if we don't say something, people are getting their views on sex from out there. And people out there assume that they don't want to come in here because they like some aspects of sex. And there are many aspects of sex that are worth liking. So if we are puritanical, if we are like that's a no thing, then we do everybody a disservice on both sides. But equally, if we are completely liberal, if we say anything goes, then we're doing a disservice to God and we're permitting and encouraging people to continue in this idolatry. But we must remember that when we look at people's behavior, the judge is not us. We're not the ones judging. We want to help, we want to support, but we do not want to be judging. Judging is a position of God. What we want to do is encourage people, encourage people in the right way, because we did not get freedom from our own sins through our own actions. You see, this entire chapter begins with the word, therefore. And that means it's linked to something that came previously. Last week, Tim preached on 1 Peter 3. And in verse 21, it says, it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Dot, dot, dot. Therefore, therefore, this entire chapter. The resurrection is the reason for this chapter. The resurrection is the reason you're being told not to do these things. The resurrection is the reason for the community Peter then goes on to talk about. We did not gain freedom from our sins through our effort, through pushing things down, through feeling super guilty all the time. We gained freedom through Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. So that is why we are not to be judging, because we didn't fix ourselves. Jesus did. And it is why if you're sitting here with the guilt and the weight of your sin, you should feel that, but it should not be on you to fix it. It is on Jesus. It is on Jesus to fix that. I've had challenges in my life, things where I have beaten myself black and blue, metaphorically, uh, that sins that I could not stop, assuming that I had to fix them before I was right with God. And eventually I realized that that's not the way. That I had to submit those sins to God. And God would cleanse me not only of the sins, but of the guilt of those sins. And that freed me 
gave me freedom to live a different life. And I'm going to talk in a second about that different life, about that freedom, what it comes out of. But I want to take a quick sidebar uh, just to cover something that uh, I encountered whilst reading this passage, whilst preaching on it, which is verse 6, which is a slightly confusing verse. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. What? The gospel was preached to those who are now dead. Is this implying the gospel was preached to the people and then they died? Or to dead people? Because that seems like a strange thing to mention either way. Because it's fairly obvious people die. But it's kind of weird if the gospel is preached. What's happening here? And I spent a lot of time, a lot of time reading up on this. Read some really old commentaries in very weird language, which didn't really make things clearer. Overall, the summation I got of this section, of this verse, is that this is talking, again, referring back to chapter 3. Chapter 3 talks about Noah, the time of Noah. It's a very long time before this was written. In the time of Noah, Noah trusted God, even when everyone around him was saying he was foolish. He was foolish to trust God. He was building a boat on dry land. He was the craziest of crazies. And yet Noah was saved, whilst other people were not. And this verse is talking about how God has had people throughout the ages that he has been saving. Throughout the Old Testament, there are people who knew God, who trusted him, and almost all of them in their time were scorned, were abused, were sometimes killed for trusting God. But all of them were judged by men according to their flesh. What they did in their life were judged by men. People judged them and said, you're wrong, you're foolish, you're stupid. God judged their spirits. Their spirits trusted and believed in God. And so they understood the gospel. The gospel is the good news of God. It's not just for people who came after Jesus. The good news of God. And it's also an exhortation for people here today who may be not hugely au fait with the Old Testament, which is a pretty big chunk of this book, to go back and look for that. As Liz mentioned, we're in this Explore Mission community, and we're looking at the moment at 1 Samuel. And it's amazing. Even in 1 Samuel chapter 2, we find references to Jesus. A huge length of time before Jesus was actually born. The gospel is being preached in all time and in all parts of the Bible. So it's also worth, you know, look back. Find Jesus in it. See that this is all because of him. What's the reason for that? What's the reason for any of this? It's all well and good to be theological and explain these things and go, oh, yes, I understand some more Bible now. Cool. But when you leave this room, what do we do with it? This is why Peter doesn't just tell us what to avoid, what to abstain from, what to worry about. He tells us where to go next. He describes a loving community. Look with me at verse 8. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. In fact, going on further to the end of verse 11, so that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. The community Peter now paints a picture of is one that's so amazing that even in the midst of his writing, he bursts into praise. He praises God for it. He can't think of or conceive this community without worshiping. And that's, that's an amazing thing. I'll be honest, when I'm generally texting someone something, 
I don't be like, oh, you know, we've got some chicken for dinner tonight. Amen. Peter is describing something truly incredible here. And he worships God for what he describes. So this is important for us to understand. Love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. This is one of those phrases that we do here in, in sort of society, maybe outside of the church as well. Love covers a multitude of sins. I think, again, it's one that people get slightly wrong. I think people assume, okay, if you really love someone, you'll just ignore their sins. Or maybe if you really love someone, that they'll ignore your sins. You can kind of just do your thing and they'll just pass over. Oh, that's just them. That's just them. That's how they are. But once again, this comes from the resurrection. This whole passage comes from the resurrection. Therefore. And the love here that covers sins is not our love for one another. Our love for one another will let us look at the person, the image bearer of God underneath those sins. But the love that covers over our sins is Jesus' love. Jesus is the one who can forgive sins. We can forgive each other. It says in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. But we also do not have the power to forgive sins. Only Jesus can come to someone and say, your sins are forgiven. So we have to remember that this love here is not something, again, that we do. It's not looking at someone who is sinning and saying, oh, if I just try really hard, really hard to love them. It's saying, ask God. Ask God for that love. Ask God to look at someone, look at someone as a broken image bearer who needs God's love. And then extend God's grace to them. Verse 10, each one should use whatever gift they have received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. God's grace. We know we are saved through faith, but we also are given this challenge. God's grace comes to the church, but the church is to minister to one another. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the words of God. If anyone served, do it with the strength God provides. It is our responsibility to take this salvation, take the things that we're freed from, and build that into our community. Minister God's grace to one another. And this is where hopefully we get a bit practical. What does it look like to minister God's grace in the church? It can look like serving. Each one should use whatever gift they've received. What gifts have you received? What gifts have you received? How are you serving with those gifts? Now, when I say serving, I don't just mean serving on a rotor at the church. Although, we would love you to serve on a rotor at the church. We do have rotors for kids' work, for hospitality, making coffee, welcoming people, standing up at the front, leading our worship, making sure the sound system works. That's a fun one. We do have those things, but that isn't the only ministry of the church. Our church ministers outside the doors as well. We work with local charities, reach out to the community, helping homeless people. Project Skate Park and Skate Charlton, providing activities in the community. Mission organizations we support. Church planting in other countries. Nova Vita Church in Italy. We have so many ways to serve God's community through our church, around our church, through individual members and their own ministries. People here are doing some amazing things, I know that. And this isn't a call to someone who is currently serving a lot and is feeling incredibly tired and burdened and over, overwhelmed by it to do more. I'm not saying everyone just 
Get yourself together and do some more right now. What I'm saying is, what are you doing to serve? Where are your gifts going? God's given you these gifts. You've been freed. You've been free to do something with them. Where can they go? But it is important that that strength comes not from you, but from God. Verse 11, do it with the strength God provides. If God isn't providing you that strength, ask God for that strength. And where else can we get that strength from? We can get it from one another. We can get it from the church community, which I think is why the other thing he talks about is speaking. Do it as one, speaking the words of God. Friends, we need to be people who speak the words of God into each other's lives. When someone comes to you and they're struggling or they're hurting, do we speak the words of God to them? And don't just mean toss in a Bible verse, hope it fixes everything and go away. I know that we can be busy. <coughs> if someone comes to us, do we give them the time? If we are in need, is our instinct to go to people in our church? Do we say, I don't want to burden them. They've got too much on their plate. Well, in that case, where are we going to get help from? Because God ministers through the church. Sometimes sharing the things that are difficult in our lives can be really, really hard. We worry about rejection. We worry about not being listened to. We worry about how we'll be perceived. Will we be perceived as a sinner? Will we be outcast? Will we be judged? Well, if people are living this life, people are following this path, then none of those things. We should be seen as broken image bearers who need God's grace ministered to them. If we know that we would speak God's word into other people, we should know they will speak it into us. We should understand that this isn't an exchange. There will be times for some of you when you are going through difficult circumstances. Maybe more difficult than you've experienced, more difficult than we can imagine you experiencing. And at that time, other people are there for you. They need to be there for you. And similarly, there are maybe times, and hopefully times, where you are doing fantastic. You are great. And those are times that God is giving you that gift to uh, feed into other people, to help people to be there for them. I'm not just extolling this as a general purpose. These are, there are things I'm thinking about in people's lives that I know of right now. And if you're one of those people, hear what I'm saying. Hear what God is saying through this, through this chapter. God is asking you to be vulnerable, to open yourself up. God is also asking you to help, to listen, to serve. Because all of this comes down, back around in a way, to verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. We had a series over the summer, which I found very encouraging, hopefully some of you did as well, about prayer. What can we do with prayer? All of this is possible through prayer and only through prayer. If we want to understand God, we have to talk to him. If we want to know how to live, we have to ask for that help. And that prayer can be in a few ways. It can be our own personal prayer lives. And we should have those personal prayer lives. And again, if you feel too guilty, too weighed down, too burdened to pray, know that you've been free to do just that. If you feel too busy, too anxious, too just fuzzy in the head to pray, you can call out to God. Call out with wordless groans. Just call out to God. Pray with other people. 
We've talked about missional communities. Missional communities are an amazing place to pray. We've had, over the last few months, I genuinely have just been overwhelmed by God's grace in our missional community, that we've had people who have never prayed before, maybe in their lives, start praying with us. And that has been amazing to see. That transforms a community, genuinely it does, when people join together in prayer. If you're someone for whom you do not know where your prayer life starts, talk to someone else, have the, ask them to pray for you. That's a way we can minister to each other as well, praying with one another, sharing these things in prayer. What draws you to a community? What makes you want to be part of something? It should be the presence of God in that community. It should be how God exists in people, how God makes himself known through what people are doing with their lives, how God makes us shine like a witness, a city on a hill. It should be in how people speak to each other, how people offer compassion, care in their words and their service. And these things that we're told to avoid, well, it should be communities that do avoid those things. Communities that acknowledge that things are difficult, that sin is hard to grapple with, but that does not judge and that forgives freely through the love that Jesus provides. Jesus himself brought people into community with him. He didn't stand on a pulpit with distant people telling them to stay away. He brought people, crowds to him. When they were hungry, he fed them. He brought his disciples everywhere with him. They traveled with him. And at the end of his ministry, before the resurrection, he ate with them one final time. And this meal that he shared with them was a symbol to us, a symbol to show us that we belong to a new community. He took bread and broke it, and he drank wine, and he said, this is his body, and this is his blood. And they do this to remind one another Remind one another of the community that you've left and the new one that you've come into. We're going to take communion in a moment. We're going to take these, which should be under your chairs, and eat the wafer and drink the juice. The band are going to play whilst we do that. And if you are part of our community, I don't just mean a member of this church, but part of this community that Peter describes, people who are saved by Jesus to love and pass on that love to others, then please join with us. Join with us in this meal. It's part of the community. It's a family meal. If you're someone who is not sure what community they're part of yet, maybe you're looking in, maybe you're just wandering still, then right now this isn't a meal for you. But please do think about that. Think about whether this is a community you want to be part of. And especially if you're someone who thinks that their wandering is to come to an end, Join God's community. Take this with us for the first time this morning. And if you're doing that, please can I encourage you to, at the end of the service, come speak to someone who's been up front and we will pray with you. And we will talk to you about what that means, what that means for your life. What draws you to a community should be Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as we look at our communities, as we look at where we want to be part of, where we want to stay away from, how to treat people wherever they are, pray that we would see that it's your love and your resurrection that empowers this, that allows us to exist in this way. 
pray that as we eat and drink together, as we worship together, you would fill our hearts with knowledge that you have provided as a community a home and a place to be, a place to be vulnerable, a place to serve, share, 